Hi, this is Joel Blackstock, and you're listening to the Taproot Therapy Collective podcast. Today, I sat down with Dr. John Beebe and talked about clinical applications of the MBTI, or the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator. Um, He is one of the foremost uh, scholars on the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator in the world, and also the originator of the eight-function type model, or the BB model, um, which lets you do some things with shadow types. Um, The topic is very broad, and if you're completely unfamiliar with Myers-Briggs typology, this may not be the place to start. But if you're interested in the Myers-Briggs and wondering how to integrate it into your clinical practice or look for it in cases with your patients, this may be the podcast for you. Um, I will go ahead and roll that interview now. That boy needs therapy. Lying down on the couch. Yeah, wonderful. And so I, I, I really, really appreciate your time. We're kind of a smaller um, clinic, and so the the podcast is a fun uh, way for you know me to talk to people that are inspirational and, and uh, groundbreaking, but then also you know you do SEO for this group of therapists and. Um, and I, you know, I grew up listening to your talks, you and Hillman and uh, Bly, I got this huge folder of Jungian analysts giving talks throughout the, you know, seventies through the nineties and Donald Callshed. And, um, the MBTI stuff was really fascinating to me because I could, I could see how it worked. But I, when I hear you in these meetings with other people, I can tell how much nat- more naturally, you know, they're doing this math in real time where I have to sit down and look at it. And it makes me feel like I'm in high school or something, you know, trying to do math again. Um, so I, I told you in the email, I felt a little bit like, you know, Salieri <laughs> could see how great Mozart was and Amadeus, but he had, didn't have the ability to do it. So, you know, you'll have to be patient with, um, you know, my understanding of it and is, is obviously not as much as, uh, as much as yours. Uh, but the goal well, of this working with, with any skill, you talk to someone who has been practicing it for a while. Well, I'd, I'd love the BB model or the implications of that to be better known. And I think a lot of the the new um, kind of trauma therapists who are looking at personality style and, you know, communication analysis, they're using some of these things, you know, and the language of that would be really neat to bring to them. So um, I, I know, you know, I don't want to make you walk through all of it, but if you could maybe just give like a, a little bit of overview of the theory of the MBTI, because I, I think it's not very well understood. Um, people see it as like a horoscope or something. Well, I think the problem even MBTI has created for us is in a way, as so many other things are a problem of language, people have a tendency to talk about personality types. Mm-hmm. And personality is something that any any working therapist has to be interested in. I got interested in types, among other things, because I found that I had to treat personality disorders as a as a psychiatrist. In other words, we had the neurotics and the psychotics, and then we had the, all the people that were in the middle, and that turned out to be uh, literally all of us. But everyone has some certain oddness to their personality, just as we have an oddness to our fingerprint. And part of that is a certain normal tendency to psychopathology, which under certain circumstances becomes quite abnormal. So it's very tempting to turn typology into a personality theory. And so very frequently people talk about personality types. But what Jung had in mind, and I think 
he was, after all, the person who found this model that he created, the typology model that he gave in Psychological Types, where he eventually, at the very end in chapter 10, makes it very clear that he had eight function types. And then we have to always ask types of what? And they were not types of personality. They were types of consciousness. Mm -hmm. They were like what in physics is called the brilliant particles, the brilliant particles of consciousness in all of us. And the only question is how they arrange themselves. Now, Jung started with a two-function model. Then by the time he got to psychological types, he had a four-function model, which was quite hard-earned. Try to remember that history. Here's a man who is trying to study what he called, but it didn't, even this wasn't original, complexes. There was already a man named Theodore Zian who had used this term, and that was partly being built on a very famous old psychologist named Wundt, W-U-N-D-T, who had pretty much established the basis of complex theory. And then Theodore Zian, a Berlin psychiatrist, starts talking about complexes. And uh, uh, these were what got translated as feeling-toned complexes. They're really affect-toned complexes. And Jung was, thought this was the key. And his chief boiler, he was a young was a young psychiatrist. He got a at medical school. He got a great job uh, as the chief assistant to the greatest psychiatrist in Europe, who was Uwein Bleuler, B L E U L E R in in Zurich. And Bleuler was very interested in in learning if there was a possible psychology to the psychoses. So young used the Zian theory and used the word association test to identify complexes because they would be these delayed reaction times. And he began to see that, yes, indeed, people do have different complexes. And he started talking about them. And he said there was a, a complex of injury. People get excited if they think that someone is trying to hurt them. There's a complex around sexuality. There's a complex around power and so forth and so on. So he started to, and then, but then he found that trying to experimentally identify through slow reaction times and strange reactions to a hundred stimulus words, that despite that, there were very different kinds of people. There was the man that came into the consulting room and he would stand absolutely at attention as if on military drill. Of course, Jung was wearing a white coat and using a stopwatch and a galvanometer to see the skin, skin responses, the electrical skin responses. And so the man would step stiffly at attention and look straight ahead and try not to give the exact association to the word. And so that was one kind of person. And then there was the other kind of person who was usually a woman would say, oh, look at that. Oh, you poor man, you've had to be sitting in this hot room all day long. And oh, but you have the beautiful salmon color of the, of the test. How, how lovely, that must make you feel better. So he had this idea that there were two types of people. One was... Uh, what he called the person who was constantly evaluating and uh, the other kind of person who was uh, uh, rather rigidly trying to, to think. And so he had two types. And he thought one was extroverted and one was introverted and one was uh, feeling and one was thinking and one was a man and one was a woman. So he had logos and eros and 
thinking and feeling and uh, uh, extroversion and, and introversion all mixed up with each other. And so, but he got very excited about that. And so that was the original two types. Then he realized as he got into it that there were other functions of consciousness. And so it took him almost <laughs> from the time he first identified a type problem uh, in the way people orient uh, to anything, uh, it took him quite a long time, almost uh, 12 years before he had four functions of consciousness. So one of them, intuition, which was his probably his dominant function, had to be named <laughs> sure. for him by someone else because he didn't think it was even a function of consciousness. He thought intuition was the unconscious for a mm -hmm. long time. And he got, and the, this, you know, for a long time, he thought an archetype and intuition were virtually the same thing. So he, he, he so finally by 1919, he's got a, he's got actually this book. And as he's, and what he's trying to do is help people realize that we do have two systems, a conscious and an unconscious. And we have a tendency to become one-sided. So he then wanted to see how we become one-sided. And he said it's, it's because we use some consciousnesses preferentially. And that puts other unconsciousnesses, in the, in, as it were, in the unconscious. Mm -hmm. And so he found that very interesting. And he developed this theory uh, uh, of psychological types. And toward the end, he realized that there are four function types and two attitude types. So the four function types are thinking, feeling, sensation, and intuition, and two attitude types, extrovert and introvert. Now, that really caught on, the second more than the first. But what got lost is types of what? The, 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 the title of his book was Psychological Types, and then when it was published in English, it was uh, something perhaps more pretentious was added by the uh, English translator, H.G. Baines, who later became the first Jungian analyst in England. But for a long time, he was in Zurich as a kind of chief associate of, or chief assistant to, to Jung. And H.G. Baines um, added the, the psychology of individuation psychological types or the psychology of individuation. So Jung felt that and let that title go on his book when it got published in English in 1923, that the development of personality itself depended upon making room for functions of consciousness that were more pushed down into the unconscious, could, but could become conscious access points between conscious and unconscious. So there's a lot of emphasis and was a lot of emphasis on the so-called inferior function because that was the access point to the unconscious. And then there was an idea that, well, if it's an access point to the unconscious, it's a kind of bridge to the unconscious. Uh, and this came up quite early for Jung in, in, the, in the late development of type, that that would be that inferior function in myself, being a rabid extroverted intuitive, that inferior function is an introverted sensation function. And you just have to watch me, fo follow me around as I 
mis misplace everything to see that I really do have inferior introverted sensation despite years of self-awareness uh, and work on the problem, it stays low and inferior. So we have in John Beebe an extroverted intuitive consciousness that loves to pick up on emergent things in the particularly in, in what's happening with other people, hence I enjoy and, and passionately interested in doing psychotherapy where things emerge all the time. That's what psychotherapy is, a set of emergent uh, phenomena that Freudian analysts would call it insights, but that constant emergence of awareness is very exciting to me. It's as beautiful as to a gardener watching flowers bloom. And so I am still as in love with it as I, I was when I decided to be a psychiatrist for sure on my 19th birthday. And so I've been at this uh, now, uh, pursuing this path for a very, very long time. And I found Jung very uh, compatible with what a psychiatrist who's interested in psychotherapy can do. There aren't a ton of psychiatrists interested in psychotherapy anymore, they, at least not in Alabama. Away. They've moved away to some degree, although all, all of them, I think they've become guilty about doing psychotherapy as if it was in their real, real, uh, real work. But of course it is every, every psychiatrist's work to try to engage with the patient, understand the patient and see what's emerging. So Jung came up with this very important idea that the inferior function, like the superior function, are both functions of consciousness, not types of people. But all types are complexes, just as that original work he was doing on, on complexes taught him. He called them type complexes or function complexes or attitude complexes. <clears throat> These days, uh, thanks to Richard Thompson, we can speak of them as function attitudes. Some people would rather call them attitude functions. It doesn't really matter as long as you get both attitude and function and realize they're the same thing. So we know technically that there's no thinking, feeling, sensation, intuition in and of itself. It only is extroverted or introverted mm -hmm. thinking, feeling, sensation, or intuition. But again, what are these? And these are complexes of consciousness that was really what Jung was Jung was starting as a psychiatrist to find the complexes of the unconscious but what he finally learned is that there are also complexes of consciousness mm -hmm. he did learn early that every and we it was always Jung's wonderful ability to see the point of things to see why the why of things so anyone who's been around psychopathology working with these days everyone is interested in traumatic complexes i gather you've done a lot of work with that but there are many many kinds of complexes well and i mean i think the mbti though there's you know there's trauma with a capital t but also there's something equalizing about that that you know there's eight modes of thinking well there's now, four, that's where i'm getting is that and we're all we bad at thinking a certain way you know we'll go have a complex around exactly exactly joel when they think in a certain way now let's go go to 
when you develop a complex that seems to be an unconscious hangup, the Latin word for complex means not, um, and it often takes the form of an NOT, something that because it's so touchy, you you can't do it. Like stage fright, for example, like I, I will not, I, I mean, and I know people who deeply in love would rather not get married because the thought of having to stand in front of an audience of people in the church and say the vows terrifies them so much. So now, we think of complexes as something hanging us up and keeping us from doing something. But at the heart of every complex, as everyone who works with it, is that the complex knows something. The complex has a purpose. It has a reason for being. It was Jung saw that very early, that all of our complexes have a kind of unconscious point. And sometimes you can't get the complex to release its grip until you see the point of it, the point of the upset, the point of it. In other words, let's say the person uh, <clears throat> who doesn't want to get married because to get married, you have to stand in front of an audience. Yes, these days, that same person was likely to take propanolol so they can get through the wedding ceremony. But what about the possibility that the complex is telling the person that marriage is not necessarily the best container for relationship for that person. And it's really about the person's integrity, not the, the fear of facing the audience, but the fear of giving the audience what it wants, a happy bride, when she's actually deeply ambivalent about marriage itself. Not necessarily mm -hmm. about the man she's marrying, but about the institution. I have sometimes felt that if, if we had a completely honest society, just like a pack of cigarettes, the marriage license would say, warning, this ceremony could be, could be harmful to your mental health. Can you imagine if we actually said that? No one would ever say that. Uh, it, would be, it would rain on the complete parade of, of love, romance, and marriage, and families, and so forth. But in fact, behind that reluctant bride's stage fright might be a lot of concern about the ceremony itself and not because of the ceremony and the speech, but because of what it connotes and all the history of marriage and all of the limitations of marriage, that those could be explored profitably. And then you discover, well, the complex was smart. The complex knew something. That doesn't mean that she should never get married. It doesn't mean the complex is the only thing, but one needs to make room for that. And, and frankly, uh, I think people shouldn't marry until they've explored all the, all the things, all the reasons why they, why they shouldn't marry, if you see what I mean. And mm -hmm. that's, where the, that's where Jung found the purposiveness of any of our complexes. So in the purpose is consciousness. Now, as he got more interested in consciousness, he also got more interested in types. And that's why the 1921 book that everyone was expecting, well, Jung has separated from Freud, and now we're going to get Jung's theory of the unconscious at last, as opposed to Freud's. And then he comes out with this book, Psychological Types. And he had the wisdom to, to try to see 
what normal consciousness is like before he went any further with the exploration of all the abnormal ways in which consciousness hides through these unconscious complexes. And so he was adding to the unconscious complexes, the conscious complexes. And he found indeed uh, that all of us have eight of these. And uh, these are these are the eight function types of consciousness. And it's really on that work that uh, I particularly have built. And there were Jungians before me. Um, in Zurich, there was a man named Meyer and uh, also a woman named Marie-Louise Marie von Franz. And she wrote this amazing book uh, on the... Uh, or, monograph you could say on the inferior function that was paired with an equally amazing work by james hillman on the feeling function mm -hmm. that book particularly taught me how far you could go with thinking about in her case the inferior function from the standpoint of eight types of inferior function eight types of inferior consciousness and what its effect was on personality and on functioning so it's the effect of consciousness on personality rather than types of personality. The effects of typology on personality became my uh, my goal. And to see how far you could get as a psychiatrist by taking the different types of consciousness seriously, giving them their say, giving them room to see, and then see what pathology is left and how much you yourself may have pathologized perfectly normal consciousness in the person or how much they may have pathologized their own consciousness because in their family or culture or nation or school uh, or business it wasn't recognized as a valid consciousness but was already scapegoated and treated as something you don't get into and so um, for me, it's all been about how far you can get by understanding the reservoir of consciousness in each of us. And so to do that, you know, I take it as seriously as uh, someone teaching in a music school in a conservatory of music would teach solfege, where you have to teach the students do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. And so it seems to me that teaching the eight functions of consciousness is the whole point of starting to get into the music of of of, of 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 the personality which is the consciousness personality can events otherwise that like like without consciousness um, uh, the conscious aspect of the typology the psyche would be sort of like a noise it would be like a, someone banging at a piano and producing discordant sounds but Consciousness is a beautiful thing, and it can provide for personality what the uh, eight notes and provided for the Western music. You get Mozart and Beethoven out of it. I mean, it's wonderful. So that's what. So my life's work is to try to see what we can do with with consciousness and what happens to our complexes when we also understand that they're en route to this very consciousness Jung is talking about. So that's what I've done. Thinking of the types as types of consciousness, thinking of the co types of consciousness as brilliant particles and that they have 
functions, thinking, feeling, sensation, intuition, but they also have attitudes, extroverted or introverted. So you get eight function attitudes of consciousness and to try to learn how they arrange themselves, what they are intrinsically and what the place in the psyche in which they happen to develop does to how they express themselves. That's been my entire work. Mm -hmm. And my model is just my is just an expression of that and the 15 chapters of uh, my book energies and patterns mm -hmm. psychological type are like 15 lights on the subject you could read them in any order mm -hmm. and most people read, read a chapter they like and go to another and you can read the book twice you can read it backwards it it will it's just a series just a, a, a series of lights on the subject of what happens when you think that way <laughs> when you think in terms of what consciousness is in different people and how it's distributed. Mm -hmm. And so the eight function model is a self-organizing system, a pattern of, of uh, manifestation of a rather beautiful thing, which is consciousness. And ideally uh, a good psychotherapy fosters it. And so working on a particular thing that someone is hung up on or a particular complex, a particular injury or a particular issue and i have written about complexes with donald sonder the book uh, jungian analysis volume two um uh, rather i shouldn't say volume i should say in the second edition of jungian analysis which was originally produced in 1981 by murray stein and then in 1995 um, had a second edition and Donald Sonder, S-A-N-D-N-E-R, and I, uh, and Murray Stein's invitation for the first volume, had uh, first edition, had, had written uh, uh, Psychopathology and Analysis, and I revised it for uh, Don and me. I did the edit editorial revision of the second uh, version for the second edition of Murray's book. <laughs> And that's the one I hope people will will read and buy, and I'm happy to share with you a copy of it, Joel, because there I try to show how typology figures into psychopathology, and I make the link explicitly between complex theory and, and typology in there, and I have and I'm using the eight function attitude model that I've developed there to do that. So I'd like you to know that's where I put as a psychiatrist, everything I learned as a psychiatrist. And I did co-author a book called Psychiatric Treatment, Crisis Clinic and Consultation in uh, 1975. And in 1995, I did a Jungian uh, piece on psychopathology and analysis. So there you'll see precisely how my work as a psychiatrist with patients with complexes that were really causing them lots of trouble is informed by type theory and how a type theory can explain some of what happens to people when uh, functions of consciousness do not support their consciousness, but actually undermine it. So it gets into the entire question of the shadow in Jungian psychology and how the types of the shadow 
can really bedevil us. And so that's where I uh, made that connection. And I recommend that to anyone who wants to see the link to clinical work directly. Mm -hmm. it's, it's implied in all my writing, but it's very explicitly laid out there as, a, as, a, as an effect complex theory for clinical work of which typology in which typology figures largely so that i advise anyone who's really interested in studying my work as it's linking to the daily practice of a psychotherapist working with difficult things i think you'll see how i make the link yeah i um i've read a lot of yours and a lot of mark hunsinger's books was that c.a meyer you said did work with typology or was that a. Meyer, that's yeah. right it's in a book called Personality. It's uh, that uh, he he wrote. Or Did you ideas. ever encounter Karen Horney's, um, you know, attachment styles? I don't know if you ever saw those. I think Karen Horney is a wonderful figure, and the answer is, as far as I know, you know Karen Horney <clears throat> was an analysis in uh, uh, Berlin, I guess with uh, Carl Abraham. And Carl Abraham did work uh, at the Buchholzli with Jung, but he was a psychiatrist who pretty much uh, after Freud and Jung split, took over the role that Jung had held of the trusted uh, most, <laughs> that Freud most trusted. And he was the one who set up psychoanalytic training and the psychoanalytic uh, how can I put it uh, uh, orthodoxy is the simplest way to say it that was reigning in, in New York psychiatry um, in the 1950s um, it, when Karen Hornei came to America she moved strongly away from Abraham's extremely um, rigid model of how psychoanalysis should be practiced and what its theoretical base was. And so she became what was called a neo-Freudian. So the work I know of, of hers, because I had a chance, a, a woman in China translated uh, um, her book uh, on conflicts, um, I want to call it Our Neurotic Conflicts, but that's not her title. Let me look and see what her title is. You may know this book. Um, it's just, just wonderful book. This book should be read by anyone analytic work. Someone in China translated mm -hmm. this and I wrote a forward to it. Oh, wow. Um, uh, Our Inner Conflicts. That book is still going to, it's coming out eventually. Um, but this was published um, as I recall in 1945 and she does a, she's the only person I've ever read who makes you feel like you're right in the consulting room with someone coming to therapy as people come to therapy with a whole set uh, of 
defenses and a, and a self-organization which almost they've come to you to get over <laughs> and to see through. So you probably have done much more work than I, and I don't know her specific work on attachment styles, but when I read this book, I felt this woman has been in my office. And She's a remarkable she was, writer. I mean, she, she knows what we deal with every day. And yeah. in a way that, and whether you're Freudian or Jungian, I think you could benefit or anybody else. Uh, there are plenty of Adlerians, whether they know it or not, and many, many other schools of thought. If you read this, just this one book, it would immediately uh, <laughs> uh, enable you to, uh, to see what we're talking about. And if you mm -hmm. see what we're talking about, how how amazing that both a false self, which he's really describing, mm -hmm. that once, but, and also the in, great internal pressure to get out of that false self and the true self that might emerge can be understand, can be understood typologically and what a miracle it is when it happens. In this book, she's more good at showing what it looks like when you're not there as to what it looks like when you start to be there. The typology mm -hmm. allows me to say more clearly what the defensive organization looks like, particularly when the shadow complexes are, are truly in shadow that is unconscious and what it looks like when there's a kind of integration of an authentic self-organization. So what she does is tell all the ways in which that doesn't happen before it does happen, which is what every therapist has to deal with. And the final chapter is conclusion of neurotic conflicts. But one of the things she shows is how both extroversion and introversion are used defensively. So she has a chapter called Moving Toward People. Mm -hmm. And she has a chapter called Moving Away From People. She also has a chapter called Moving Against People. Those are the three styles in neurosis and human growth. You know, she talks um, about the origin in and, childhood. And all of those could be understood as what happens when types of consciousness with extroverted or introverted attitudes are used as defenses of the self rather than as actual emanations and realizations of the self. And so mm -hmm. uh, what I feel my work on shadow complexes uh, and on the four, we have four <laughs> types of personality for function types for function attitudes personality that constitute our dominant auxiliary tertiary and inferior function and a kind of marvelously seductive sense of wholeness which four gives us but just because of that degree of differentiation of consciousness we have those same four functions used with the opposite attitude creating complexes of the unconscious unless we make them conscious so that mm -hmm. like every other an analyst i'm 
dealing all the time with what one Jungian analyst called defenses of the self. And I'm trying to help the person be less possessed by defenses of the self and more adequately able to defend themselves by being themselves, by mm -hmm. being able to use their um, native and natural four functions of consciousness with full awareness of everything they leave out so that the complexes don't have to constantly compensate from within to uh, restrain them. It's almost like our neuroses tend to be like a leash on the dog that wants to uh, run off with its, what it thinks is, is the right thing to do. And uh, mm. the, the, uh, the neurosis or the, or the shadow functions that create the neurosis are trying to <clears throat> downboy, restrain us mm -hmm. to some degree so that we don't go off the rails. When you make that more conscious and you actually see all the consciousness that's in the unconscious and listen to it, usually the symptoms start to go away. Mm -hmm. And there's a great feeling of wholeness that is not seductive of four, but it's the it's the it's the balanced wholeness of four conscious functions and four shadows to that that we heed so that we don't just get to an, an unbalanced. Now I don't know how much I've done just already to be one-sidedly John Beebe with his extroverted intuition and introverted thinking and his tertiary extroverted feeling as inferior introverted sensation. But at least I'm aware that there's another world that belongs to people who have dominant introverted intuition mm -hmm. <clears throat> or that have auxiliary extroverted thinking or that have you know, tertiary introverted feeling or that have inferior extroverted sensation. And that other personality is there too in me. And it's going to give me troubles if I get too caught up in being my supposed self and leave too much of that out. At least I'm aware of it. I remember you you had a talk that I listened to a long time ago about um, your dream changing. There was a, a laundromat owned by a Chinese couple that you would visit and dream in the couple. A laundrette, a laundrette, not a laundromat, a real laundrette where they, she actually was there receiving the laundry, uh, washing it and folding it. That was very important. She represented my introverted sensation. She was a Chinese woman named Peggy Wu who I lived in real life three blocks from the old Victorian I was living in in San Francisco. And for various reasons uh, that say everything about my inferior function, I didn't, I had a nice house, but I didn't have um, um, laundry facilities in it. So um, I took my laundry and I love taking my laundry because she would bring it back to me in order. I mean, it would be, everything would be, very neatly packaged and in San Francisco, um, there are a lot of Asian people and um, uh, uh, that have coming to America as immigrants, restaurants and laundries were very, very popular and they're very, very relatively inexpensive. So um, 
it probably wasn't cost effective and a more practical person would have put in a washer and dryer as I now have and I'm my own <laughs> laundry person now but uh, she was a critical figure for me because things and objects and were a perfect chaos for this extroverted intuitive man. I mean, he was just a constant creator of what could be called litter and, and mess. And the idea of taking my laundry to her and having it come back neatly packaged and all folded, just for me, there was something, well, the only word that you can use is Jung's word, numinous, N-U-M-I-N-O-U-S, which it, and he got from a book called The Idea of the Holy. It has the nod of the God to it. There's something sacred about it. And I, so I found that whole thing of taking my laundry to Peggy Wu. But when I dreamed about her, she was a poor woman. Um, and uh, she was bitter and alone in a room because she didn't have anything. She had a husband who wasn't bringing his money home. And he was... Uh, presumably off gambling or something and doing and just not being around. And so there wasn't even any furniture and, and she was just alone in a room and she looked unhappy. And uh, I was in analysis with a woman at that time. Um, uh, I can say her name. Her name was Elizabeth Osterman, O-S-T-E-R-M-A-N. And she, she had once met Jung. She was a, an American uh, uh, psychiatrist and Jungian analyst in the Jung Institute of San Francisco. And she uh, was a very, very careful, serious therapist. She had originally been a virologist. And then uh, after getting a PhD um, in that, that went on to go to medical school, become a doctor, and eventually became a psychiatrist and union analyst, analyst because she was so impressed by her own union analysis. So she practiced a very careful analysis. And when I told her that dream, she said the one interpretation she really made is about the woman alone in the room, who, as I said, is that Chinese laundress, Peggy Wu, um, she doesn't have anything. Now, that comment really meant something to me. And then I thought about the man that left her alone and didn't give her furniture. And I, I realized that I was seriously neglecting something in myself, that that man had to be my extroverted, intuitive ego. And although I was not literally gambling, I was constantly pursuing possibilities in the world. I mean, you'd have to be an extroverted, intuitive. If you give an extroverted, intuitive a city, it's sort of dangerous because I, I happen to love cities and I've, I wouldn't probably want to live in anything but a city but I, San Francisco is a wonderful city and it has many bookstores and so forth and so and movie theaters and so forth and I'm talking now about San Francisco of around 1972 when I'm when I would have had that dream 
And in those days, when I finished my day's work, if I read in the newspaper about a book that had been published, I'd drive across the city to the bookstore to get there before it closed so I could buy the book that day. Or I, or if I heard about a new movie that had opened, I would hurry and go to the new movie. And I'm a big movie buff. So I'm, and so basically pursuing things that might be interesting was taking me away from a more introverted use of time that I wasn't working. And not surprisingly, I was developing various somatic symptoms like migraine headaches and so forth because I was really pushing the envelope of trying to pursue possibilities but not knowing very much about well you could say folding them up and packaging them up and containing the day something I now spend a lot of time doing at the end of every day. I always liked that you used the um, concept of the psychosoma in your talks. You don't see a lot of somatic psychology in the Jungian world. Um, and I always liked that you connected. Hillman did that too in Emotion in his first book. But you always connected these complexes um, to physical manifestations. And and I think a lot of times that gets left out. Well, it, it, you're absolutely right. And we could talk about that theoretically, or I could tell you that as I meditated on that dream, <clears throat> I thought, okay, this woman is folding the clothes and putting them in order. She doesn't wear makeup. Um, she's rather simple in her presentation. She's extremely efficient. I said, you know, this looks like introverted sensation to me. So I had been reading young and young, and I've been reading, I've been reading all the time in those days. And so that, and I said that to my analyst. She said, I couldn't agree more. She said, and I said, I think that's my inferior function. She, that's what she was agreeing about. Then I thought, I'm not giving introvert sensation enough. What is introverted sensation? Well, I did know it was interested in efficiency, and I did know that it was very good with detail, like accountants or people who keep track of very... And the folding of the laundry, the way it was put in the whole presentation of Peggy Wu, I'm sure I got her type right. Um, and how what a hard time I had keeping track of money and accounts. And I mean, there was a... Even learning to drive a car was such an achievement for me. I didn't learn until I was 29 years old to drive a car. And I uh, have always had a trouble with sense of direction. That could be a problem with extroverted sensation as well. But particularly keeping order was really a problem for me. She had, the, she had that down. But when I thought of her as introverted sensation, I thought, well, now let's think about that. That sensation, I have a good thinking function, so I was using my thinking function. Uh, uh, sensation on the inside of the body. So I have to reason to myself on the inside of the body. Well, let's start with breathing. 
because that surely is an, it's an autonomic nervous system function. And I knew that I had migraine headaches, which suggested a disturbance of the autonomic nervous system. In fact, I what I felt in my migraines were part of a general sympathetic nervous system collapse that I would get into where finally my sympathetic nervous system was pulsing and the very arteries were were uh, both expanding and contracting because the pressure I was putting on the inside of my body by this constant running around and stuffing in new books and new ideas and new movies and new books, it was just too much. And uh, it was like... <clears throat> was like addiction, but not, thank heaven, drug addiction, but it was a form of, it was an extroverted intuitive inflation around the emergent, the emergent world. And a lot was emerging in the early 70s. It was a very exciting time. And so it was a lot, including the fact that I was in Jungian analysis after all, and becoming a Jungian analyst. I picked up on that emerging trend ahead of most people. Uh, of my generation, and so that was a big deal. And <clears throat> but my something in me was really out of kilter, and so I began to attend to my breath in the therapeutic hours. And what I noticed was I was doing a lot of Jungian reading, and I was particularly reading the works of von Franz and these phenomenal associate of Jung's, V-O-N-F-R-A-N-Z, for those who don't know her work. And she, she, her collected works are now coming out of Chiron publications, so they're readily available. In those days, they were coming out as a series of books from spring publications. Uh, the Interpretation of Fairy Tales, Shadow and Evil in Fairy Tales, The Problem of the Feminine in Fairy Tales, a marvelous book on the golden ass of Apuleius, a uh, uh, Roman novel, a marvelous book in which he analyzes that, The Problem of the Puer Eternus that everybody, every Jungian was reading at that time, The Eternal Boy Problem. And certainly, Any I, of the I, Roman stock types of that era, you, you feel like those are describing MBTI functions, you know? Uh, or or any um you know it seems like you you kind of get people who use a different maybe a more intuitive language to talk about the same mbti functions like Ro robert moore towards the end of his life is doing the four you know aspects of mature masculine or something do you see any overlap between the mbti and other things that people may already be using or familiar with well where i came in was to see that Von Franz seemed to think that the inferior function was the place, the doorway through which all these different archetypes come. So for me, that inferior function was introverted sensations. So I began to want to sort the archetypes. Uh, and that's what I began to do with my type work. So that I found it as a very good way to understand where archetypes is where types of consciousness emerge. But I wouldn't have gotten there without the work I did on, on the interior of my body with breathing. So I'll stay with it for just a little longer so you can mm -hmm. see that you sort of, I realize I'm taking you through a very particular point, but imagine that I'm taking 
a thread through the eye of the needle right now. Okay. So put up with this tediousness a little bit sure. because I had to too. I had to sit with my body and I had to realize what I was doing. Now I was reading von Franz and I adore dream analysis and I love to work with dreams. And I trained myself to, to hear what dreams are saying. And with each patient that came in, and of course, people knowing your interest in dreams will certainly give you dreams. That doesn't mean that you're, you're shaping the dreams, but it became a, a real part of the work I did with so many people. And I think to their benefit, they, I wasn't just laying a Jungian trip on them. They really wanted to tell me their dreams. People do like to work with dreams and it does, and they really help. Jung is right about that. And Jungian analysts can get rather good at it. If you do anything you do, you can get rather good at it. If you play baseball, you get good at it. If you do dream analysis all the time, you get good at it. I mean, uh, and I myself was writing down 30 dreams a week at that time. I was really, you know, very interested in dreams. So, but what was happening to my body when I was working with the dreams is that I was so interested in the images and the archetypes and the and all and what all the people in those days were saying and Robert Moore and I and others came out of that wake of all that interest uh, that was already being laid down. I mean, Jungian analysis was just the the emergent thing in the early 70s. So there were plenty, and I would write the dreams down that the patient told them, but I would also, as I would listen to the dreams, and this is what me noticing, taking my own dream about the Chinese laundress not having anything, and my own Jungian analyst woman saying she doesn't have anything, and me saying, that's introverted sensation. I've got to give more attention to it. So I'm paying attention to my breathing now as I'm listening to the patient. And I notice that I'm so excited about the emergent archetypal images and what they mean. And my extrovert intuition is so wrapped with attention that I'm literally listening with bated breath. And that for significant minutes of each day as, as I'm in my office working with patients, I'm not even breathing lest it disturb the thinking about the archetype and the interpretation I could possibly deliver. So no wonder I had this terrible uh, carbon dioxide poisoning in my body. No wonder I wasn't breathing normally. So I thought, now, I've got to take care of her. I've got to take care of the introverted sensation anima, carrying the inferior function of introverted sensation. This lonely Chinese woman, she's, I had learned the anima as the archetype of otherness. Uh, and so she was certainly other. She was from another part of the world and she was obviously different from me in every possible way, a female and the opposite type, introverted sensation, or at least the inverse type to extroverted intuition. So in any case, I'm paying attention to my breathing. I notice I'm with beta breath, so I thought, I am going to have to breathe while I listen and talk. I can't just listen with bated breath and then deliver an interpretation. I've got to, uh, to, to so 
I started making room for my breathing. And patients noticed I, they could they could hear me sighing and exhaling and inhaling, and people they would comment on it. But what I found is that in that way, and this is something every therapist will find, that by carefully listening to what was going on in my body in the introverted sensate way, I would be able to locate affects that were quite relevant to what the patient was saying that were precisely not what was being symbolized in the dreams, precisely not what we were talking about at the thinking intuitive level, but what was going on at the body. And I could suddenly say things to people like, I can't say why, but I'm just getting the feeling of incredible sadness right now. And the patient would just burst into tears. And so what I found, as every therapist will find, that it's not what I could do brilliantly off the top of my head with the extroverted intuition and the introverted thinking, but what I could do with my relatively inferior feeling and my absolutely inferior sensation that if I'm listening to my body, I could get much closer to that which was just as emergent and just as at the heart of the dream but not being talked about by the client. So I became a much better therapist, much better therapist. And it was all because I had a dream that told me my introverted sensation didn't have anything. And that I, and so then I could really relate to the, the dirty laundry and get it cleaned and, 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 and do my job. And so you can only imagine so when I discovered that, I thought, well, if paying attention to an anima figure carrying a function of consciousness that's inferior, what if all the figures that I see in the dreams, my dreams and other people's dreams, each of them is holding in archetypal form a consciousness that needs to be unpacked? And if we did that for everyone, where is it? What is it containing? And from that, I started to really passionately live the eight function model that you see me writing about now. That's where that came from. And you, so you're absolutely right, right through the body. Wow. And, and you said the dream changed then, you know, it, you revisited the Peggy Sue and saw that her husband was treating her better after you after did your I own started work. breathing and made room for it. She said, uh, she looked happier and uh, it was and uh, her husband was taking her out now for ice cream and she looked happier so i was but as someone said who i told that dream to a, a woman in one of my uh seminars she said well it's going to take a lot more than ice cream to take care of her and I, of course that's true and i, I there was a, so that basically the way I've taken care of Peggy Wu is very, very interesting. I mean, you know, she was from a very wealthy family in uh, China. And, uh, but then the Japanese invaded. Her grandfather was the richest man in her town. And um, he was hung by the Japanese and his body publicly displayed. Uh, and to, so, that, so that was, so she, she, she had come, that she had, so the family lost everything as she came here, so. Mm -hmm. But it became a powerful symbol for, for you that your psyche resonated with. I had lived in China as a child for two years. 
when I, between 1946 and 48. And I went to an American school that was called the Hillcrest American School that, that had um, <clears throat> children from, um, it's, it's run by missionaries, created by missionaries. And it was for, it was, the classes were in English. Um, and the people who were there were people who were sons and daughters of um, ambassadors to China, for secretaries to China from the diplomatic corps. My father was a, a military attache or an assistant military attache. And we lived in a big house in, in Nanking, as we called it nowadays. It would be called Nanjing, but we called it in those days Nanking. And, and uh, um, I remember walking home from school one day and uh, passing a Chinese girl. And she looked at me, this was about 1948, when I was perhaps nine years old, maybe still eight years old. I turned nine that year. She, she looked at me in very slow, careful English. She was about 12 years old. She looked at me and said, you are a pig. Well, little, so little did I know that in 1998, um, I would get the opportunity to be sent by the International Association of Analytical Psychology on a diplomatic mission, not unlike my father's after World War II, to go and speak at the first International Congress of uh, Analytical Psychology and Chinese Culture, which was organized by a man who had studied in America named Dr. Hoyong Shen, S-H-E-N, um, had studied personality psychology in Illinois and gotten to know Murray Stein and had previously invited Murray Stein to come to China with Thomas Kirsch, who was uh, the, at that time the president of the International Association. Now, when I'm sent, Murray Stein is the president of the organization and Hoyang Shin is having this conference, and Murray Stein wants me to go because he knows that I'm interested in China, because I lived in China and I happen to have spent a lot of time studying the Chinese book, the I Ching. And Dr. Shen and I had met in in uh, San Francisco. Dr. Kirsch had, had, was in San Francisco and had met, introduced me, and he and I would talk about the I Ching when he was in America. And then he, so I was invited, and so I went. And I gave the keynote address there, the opening address, and also the closing address. That began work that I continue now uh, with. I've been going to China, and during the pandemic, now I just am online. I at least ten hours of my work week is always spent with people in China, and now China has uh, not only. Jungian analysts, but it has its own um, uh, uh, analytical society of Jungian analysts. And they, this last year in August, were finally granted the right to do their own training. So little did I know that I would one day have a chance to do something for China and that I could do something about being a pig. And, uh, and so uh, I was, and here I was, here, here, here I had this chance. 
had I, and I have been teaching typology in China and it has caught on there as perhaps even nowhere else in the sense that they all learn it. And when I talk to people in China, I mean, I can have a person in my practice and I can say, well, that particular uh, image in your dream seems like an image of, of, of the trickster. Oh yes, function number seven, he says. They know my model perfectly and they use it all the time in their work on dreams and everything else. Now, who would have ever thought that? So that that embedded in that dream and in the body problem that I had to solve in that dream was not just introverted sensation, but it turned out to, to, to open an avenue to extroverted sensation. All these trips to China, all this work and my, even my willingness to learn as many intuitive men of my generation had to learn to use the internet and use it well enough so that I could do Mm -hmm. teaching both at a distance and able to go there and so um who would ever have believed that all this could come out of um the chinese laundress that didn't have anything that i took seriously and gave her something i mean who knew that that, that it would be like that but it is like that and this past year i uh, was able to to a special issue of this Journal of Analytical Psychology of uh, on psychological types. And there's a marvelous article about um, the correlation between the eight trigrams in the, uh, that are so famous in Asian cultures. There are four of them are on, this, on the flag of Korea. They're called GUA, the eight gua, uh, which are the essential units of the I Ching, which is a book of wisdom. And this, he has made what for me is the most convincing correlation between the eight Gua and the eight function attitudes of consciousness. His name is uh, uh, Professor Tsai, and his, his last name, his Chinese name is Ching Ho. So if we said his name in the English uh, way, we'd hear it. Uh, it would be Ching Ho Tsai, but because in China, the last family name is always first. I know him as Sai Ching Ho. And Sai Ching Ho um, published this in the special issue. And so at last, the link between China and typology that began with that dream has actually turned into something that I think could really be helpful because uh, uh, I see now that the ancient Gua really were the first discovery of the eight billion particles that Jung found entirely differently. Jung often found that his work that came out of a completely Western source had an Asian and particularly a Chinese analog. And through his friendship with Richard Wilhelm, who is the... Uh, 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 translator spent 25 years in China of the famous I Ching but now think of my life there's a doctoral student in London who's been doing the definitive work on Wilhelm's entire contribution 
and how it fits into analytical psychology and studying Jung history and, and with Sonu Shandasani, who translated the Red Book, and he's a graduate student there. Um, and uh, he and I can talk, I've been to Wilhelm's school in China twice. He and I have talked about what Wilhelm did, and he's been able to go into the Wilhelm archive in Leipzig, and I've been able to talk to him about that. He is the person who translated my types book into Chinese for the Chinese to have. So we have that kind of connection. All of that phenomenal textured richness of actual thinking, feeling, sensation, all coming out as well as my intuition out of taking that Chinese wondrous dream seriously. Mm -hmm. I just think it's amazing how much can come from just that. If that isn't consciousness emerging, what is? I mean, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm hoping to hand like that interpretation, she doesn't have anything. That's what I'm really trying to do for other people. If they read my stuff, they'll say, wait a minute, maybe that could do something with me. And who knows what's in that surprise package for those people. But they've also got to make it real by taking it into their own body and also their own spirit and their own soul in their own way. That's obviously true. The path so that's why it took you through the eye of the needle because I wanted you to see the great, it really mm -hmm. like that wonderful, it's, all mis, it's mistranslated, but a camel going through the eye of the needle is a wonderful image in, uh, in the New Testament. It's actually a camel hair, but there, the, it turns out to be the slenderest thread turns out to be the very rope of life. It's just really interesting. It's really interesting. Well, um, yeah, I think <clears throat> there's kind of a push like in the 80s. It seems like there's a lot of, I don't know if you would call them post-Jungian or what, like models where people leave the Institute, they're kind of feel constrained by just pure analysis. And, you know, are you familiar with like Arnold Mendel that does the process therapy or Sidron Hellstone? I mean, they both leave and kind of turn to Jungian. Therapy very body mind and so forth. Yeah, yes. yeah. Or dream body or something like that. His thesis is that the symbol in the dream is the is also corresponds to a place in the body that that level of I mean I would call it the subcortical brain you know is this place where the kind of deep unconscious mind is not con cognitive it's not thinking you know it's conscious but it's not thinking in in, in language and that's sort of enmeshed with muscle responses and, and a physicality you know at that level of thinking and you just see a lot of that i wonder if it's people wanting to break into the body when they're leaving the institutes in that period and starting these new somatic jungian models well it's present in Jung, but it gets lost and mm -hmm. so i don't i'll say it this way <clears throat> One of the shadow problems of Christianity, which became the dominant religion of the West, is its um, attitude toward the body. And um, uh, it's, it's, it's strange because it, it depends on how you read Christianity. I mean, 
you know, St. Thomas Aquinas didn't leave the body out. I mean, if he talks, he talks about how, um, what does it mean that there's a resurrection? And, and, and there's a long, wonderful passages. Do the fingernails go up to heaven? Yes, the fingernails go up to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> eyelashes go yeah he's very clear it's very almost hilarious that all the people ask trying to say well surely it's just the spirit that goes up no 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 it's absolutely the body and of course the central christian mystery is the literal resurrection of jesus now um i'm not going to get into whether that's one's belief or not but what it is and the communion ritual that is so central to some people's uh, where the bread is the flesh of Christ and the wine is the blood of Christ, that taking that into one's system in an embodied way. So when I say that there's a, bias against the body, I want to also point out there's also a bias against the part of Christianity that is embodied. So I want to be very clear that I'm not just making a cheap shot, an uninformed shot. At its best, Christianity is, 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 only, is, 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 is we're told repeatedly who are interested in Christianity and are Christians. You're told repeatedly that if you don't embody it, it isn't Christianity. Yes. So, that, so let's be sure that I, I say that. But nevertheless, there was a certain medieval attitude toward the spirit, and even and Thomas Aquinas had to fight it then. And that and it, it it's it's a tendency to spiritualize things and ignore the body. And certainly that was what was happening to me. With it. I was, certainly was picked up on the spirit of Jungian psychology, but I also had to get into the body. And in Jung's Mysterium Conjunctionis, which is a long, hard, and sometimes boring book to read, but has a brilliant finale. Um, he talks about an alchemist named Dorn, D-O-R-N, and he talks about something that Edward Edinger picks up on, which is the conjunction in Latin, conjunctio, uh, the conjunction of uh, psychic opposites, the coming together of opposites. That's huge with Jung, of course, and the, the idea of a conjunction. But Dorn talks about a lesser conjunctio. He's a Rosicrucian of approximately the 16th century. Uh, a lesser conjunctio and a greater conjunctio. And the lesser conjunctio is what he calls the unio mentalis, the mental union, the union of spirit and soul. Now, the term spirit and soul, some people think they should be identical. They're not. James Holman did a beautiful essay on the difference between spirit and soul. The essay is called Peaks and Veils. It's one of my favorite of his essays. I heard him give it in person, and it's an amazing. I felt like I was listening to one of the great jazz performances of all time, but it was jazz of introverted thinking by this great introverted thinking general way Hellman had. So the union of spirit and soul is the union mentalis, and that is sort of, unfortunately, 
where I was before I had the Chinese laundress dream because I was taking soul experiences, feelings, affects, depressions, sadnesses, that kind of thing, and bringing a basically spiritual interpretation the archetypes, the dreams. And so I had a lot of intellectual insight. I had, a, I was bringing my mind together. I had a union mentalis, a mental union of, so that I had a lot of gifts as a young psychiatrist at being able to match up uh, a feeling state with its meaning, which is, which was made me quite precocious and very, I mean, it made me the chief resident of psychiatry at Stanford, and I was accepted into training readily by the Young Institute of San Francisco. I mean, I, I had a kind of brilliant union mentalis, but I was leaving the other thing out, and that other thing is the body, so that for Dorn, the greater conjunctio is when you take that union mentalis, the union of spirit and soul, and return it to the body or bring the body into it. And then you have the divine troika, spirit, soul, and body. So when I work with people now, I try to see who they are and, and notice that there are many other examples of two taking two out of the three and trying to pretend that's wholeness. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who have the spirit and the body and their bodies are great, and their spirit is great, the soul is left out. Mm-hmm. Or then there are people who are very body-soul. They're, they're, they've had body and soul, you know, like great torch singers. They have a great soul and a great body, and, and they have no room for the spirit. The spirit is more likely. It's mm-hmm. called the mind. To me, they're all parts in a way. depends on how you use the word mind. But I love that idea that now, of course, there are people who have none, and there are people who only have one. But I'm talking about reasonably developed people, people like yourself and myself who are already therapists, already aware of things, practicing and trying to help people and helping themselves and developing methods. It's amazing how often we choose two out of the three and think we don't even need the other and have a mm-hmm. subtle contempt for the other, whichever the other is. And is that the unlived life of the parent a lot of the time? I mean, my experience is that the thing, the part of self that people minimize is usually the psychic territory mom and dad never mastered. Or the culture, maybe, you know, can function as a parent sometimes. The culture never mastered. You know, you could say um, that my father was the spirit and my mother was the soul. And uh, I was left, the body was dumped on me. And I was the one that was processing the unconscious for all of them, for for, for their And so that you could say that, and I think you wouldn't be far wrong. I think that's a great idea, Joel, that you have, and you're absolutely right. So, but when you think of the wholeness as as you have to sort of wholeness is something you have to triangulate. You mm-hmm. you stop being in love with four, and you start being in love with three. It's at mm-hmm. one place where one once one one wag once said that all Jungians divide things into four, and all Freudians divide things into three. The, the the part that young yeah that's that's doing. interesting numerology I never thought of that when I has three Jung has four the one thing Jung lost when he left Freud 
was Freud had a very lively sense of the body, uh, and and mm-hmm. I think that Jung was embodied, but it's sometimes in his theory, it's a lot of people are using Jungian theory, Jungian psychology, as if it has no body or as if it's an yeah. easy escape from the body, and that's too bad. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's strange too because it wasn't how he practiced. He was pretty experiential, but a lot of times I think analysis. Um, becomes just purely intellectual and analytical in it. Or, or you know, mentalis, soul and spirit, but, yeah. but no body. Um, Have you ever seen anyone that does that in neurostem or neurofeedback? It's kind of a newer technology. There's a place here that I'm... I, I do, you know, well, by, uh, they have the QEG cap. There's a friend of mine who did uh, bio, biofeedback for years, so I know a lot about that, but I don't know as much about some of the things that I've been hearing about lately that I do know about that some of my clients have gotten into, which is well, so, mapping an EEG. Map. Yeah, the QEG maps, that's it, it which is different. The biofeedback is a little bit different. Um, there's a visual um, with the QEG, and so I'm not an MG. I mean, we're working with a clinic here. We've kind of done some experiments where I'll do brain spotting on one of the owners while she has the cap on, and then you get to see what it's doing and when her body feels this way, and then the body turns into an emotion where the things move, which is kind of an interesting, um, you know, learning thing. But when you're, do you have any idea like where these things are in the brain or what the brain is doing? I mean, Jungians are pretty phenomenological, but when they're, and the the guys are doctors and engineers that have built this thing, but, you know, And again, I'm not a doctor. I'm trying to explain, you know, something that's probably above my pay grade, but there's basically like frequencies, like wavelengths that the brain moves at. And none of them are good or bad, you know, just like a lot of the MBTI functions. It's just when they're unconscious or when they're overrepresented, the people are not flexible. So you wear the cap and then they look at what the brain is doing and they're like, okay, well, the, the theta wave is too high. And I don't know if this is really what the theta wave is, but like one of them, they're like, you're you're thinking reflexively internally all the time. You're very self-conscious. You're wondering if you're coming off well, if, if things are, you're thinking about how you appear. And, and pe- people are like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what my problem is. And they're like, well, you're doing that 90% of the time. You need to do it 10% and make room for these other frequencies. But a lot of them seem like they have a correlation with typology. That what well, they're doing probably is- probably know Dario Nardi's work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's certainly been doing actual location of the eight function attitudes and he has he has this book um i i think he is trying to get to this for us Um, Mm -hmm. but my feeling is that i keep wishing that i had learned my neuroanatomy better than i did and I feel like as you talk to me, I can almost feel like, um, you know, Moses never got to the promised land. I begin mm-hmm. to feel a little like Moses, but even at 83, I'm not afraid to keep learning. I think I have some learning to do because I think there is something there. I will go back to something in a dream that Jung interpreted that you may not know. <clears throat> That in 1919 was the first year that Jung used the term archetype, but it was also the year in which Jung published in the Lancet, L-A-N-C-E-T, which is one of the two great scientific medical journals. 
that everyone recognizes and even then was bad. Mm -hmm. The other being nature. Uh, if you published in Nature or The Lancet, that means that you have done something for science. And so those two those two uh, journals are, are critical. Well, he, Jung published in The Lancet that year, and what he published was the correlation between in a diagnosis he made on the basis of a dream and a diagnosis and the di that was confirmed and the correlation was what was found at autopsy. The dream was of a patient um, who dreamt that he saw two um, ancient elephants, I guess they called them mastodons, wouldn't they was not the word that those very mm -hmm. ancient uh, elephants drowning in a pool of uh, in, in a lake of water, some kind of lake. They were drowning in a lake. I think I've got the dream right. Um, this whole dream has been discussed in great and meticulous detail by Russell Lockhart, but Jung published it in The Lancet because on the basis of the dream, Jung said, this man has a brain tumor. And Lockhart has unlocked how, and it's, it's a brain tumor that's in the region, a certain region of the brain. Well, you have to know how Jung got that interpretation. He was a particularly, he was so concerned with being a good doctor he really overcompensated and used his introverted sensation, which I think was his eighth function, so skillfully that he was still a legend about how much medicine he knew. And when later Jung had imagined, didn't have the wording that he later had, but he imagined he was a sensation type because he paid so much attention to very precise detail. There are two organs called the mammillary bodies, which, which are have that name and they carry memory um, mm. and uh, for the brain <clears throat> and Jung knew that the word mammillary body comes from the same word as, as um, the, the Latin word for uh, elephant so he could imagine that if the patient was having a dream that the to elephants that the mammillary bodies must be drowning in cerebrospinal fluid and that could only happen if there was some kind of blockage to the flow of cerebrospinal fluid which therefore would be a tumor mm -hmm. and he made that that interpretation that prediction and it was published so there is the best evidence that Jung was willing to think of the archetypal mm -hmm. as he always felt dreams were self-portraits of the actual situation in the unconscious, and that would include, in this case, the actual physical situation in the person's brain. So I think mm -hmm. that's a very important historical essay, and I advise you to look at it, and uh, if I can find Russell Lockhart's. Yeah, I Googled it after you um, told me about it last time, and I couldn't find it, but knowing that it's in the Lancet makes it easier, so I can, can probably yeah. find it. So right. I think we should we should definitely... Pay attention to the fact that though Jungians have 
frequently settled for the unio mentalis, thinking that Jung is the most brilliant way to understand soul experience and try to make it a union of spirit and soul. Mm -hmm. If that's a lesser conjunction, we really can include the body. And if we do, we will find that in the body of Jung's work, he never really leaves the body out. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that if we did nothing else for Jung than to give him full credit for that, yeah, um, I think we would have done something. This is kind of a weirder question, but I've always kind of been curious about what your thoughts would be on this. You know, with, with the, the BB model, a lot of it, what you're doing is taking the BTI type and using it to predict an internal cosmology. You know, what somebody's trickster <laughs> looks like, what's going to show up as a demon. So you just what, said it very beautifully. Thank you. Well, do you think it's possible to run that algorithm backwards? Like to try and take the typology of like a, of, of a cosmology of a, of a society's mythological system or of a, you know, maybe a science fiction author, fantasy author, and then be able to kind of intuit a, a typology of a culture almost, and and some of the things going on with the culture. I do you it know? all the time with film and with politics and with uh, with the presentations of, of cultures. I spend a lot of time, for instance, and I've published about this. If you if you believe as I do that the natural dominant of Chinese culture is introverted intuition. It's mm -hmm. the most gigantic achievements that Tao Te Ching, the I Ching um, are obvious examples of a tremendous capacity of, of introverted intuition. I would have to include the I Ching, the I Ching there. Um, the then, and if you've ever experienced Chinese people directly, they have such a distorted idea of what China is, especially when we're in a political um, contretemps with China, which I th I'm very sad about when that happens. And I, I'm not saying that China hasn't participated in it at a political level, but I really don't like I really think if China and America could get along they could civilize the rest of the world because they have that potential but uh, we've got to first civilize our relationship to China and that's a very difficult thing and China's with us too of course but the experiment in international communication I've been involved in for the last 21 24 years now I mean it's just proves beyond a shadow of a doubt to me what we can have. The Chinese extroverted feeling as it's like so you're in it. I've met such a welcoming, affirming group of people, such a fine group of people that I have worked with personally. Yeah. And so if you accept that that's an MBTI INFJ presentation, we have to understand that partly because of the way the West tried to colonize China, starting with the opium wars of the British in the 1850s, that said for the last 175 years, really, um, the problem of China has not only been to keep China for the Chinese and get the, the colonizing uh, uh, forces out of it. I mean, there are some really 
pretty awful stories that take place in the late 19th century. And there's even a terrible photo of uh, uh, a young American soldier grinning as he sits on the emperor's throne in China after the Americans have broken into the uh, Forbidden City, something we should all be ashamed of. It's just terrible. But uh, the... Um, the effort to get China for the Chinese, which was the goal of Sun Yat-sen and then his two sons, Mao Zedong and Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang Kai-shek eventually lost the Civil War and he went to Taiwan and now you have the so-called two Chinas. But everything was to get China for the Chinese and both of those countries are thriving and successful for Taiwan is not entirely a country for various reasons, but it is thriving and so is China. They're both thriving. China is now for the Chinese. Um, but there's been this massive overcompensation of the inferior function of extroverted sensation, which is a classic Adlerian, Alfred Adler, overcompensation for a sense of inferiority to prove to everyone that China can be a cities as gleaming as American cities. And it's true if you're in Guangzhou, it's one of the most beautifully designed modern cities and it has everything in terms of advanced design as Seattle, Washington. It's just very, very uh, beautifully planned, beautifully laid out city now that was once, um, you know, like Hong Kong, a kind of English English colonized city. So when you see the overcompensation of extroverted sensation in China it has all the problems of any overcompensation. It's too much pressure on the inferior function and it's not good. But then we look at our country and here we have a natural country that's extroverted thinking with our with the auxiliary introverted sensation. Uh, George Washington was the most introverted sensation of our presidents. You know, the, I often talk about how at the Battle of Yorktown, he fights all day, He's leading the general. But before he goes to bed, the night he's won the Battle of Yorktown and that kind of 18th century thing that starts at dawn and goes all day. You can only imagine what it must have been like to win the Battle of Yorktown. Before he goes to bed, he takes out his ledger and carefully records every cannonball and every uniform and every expense made for that day so that he, he doesn't miss the expenses. He's still accounting for everything. He kept the books. So we once had that kind of, we've only had one president in recent years that was truly introverted sensation, and that was Eisenhower. And of course, he wanted to balance the budget. He said, it's going to be a problem in the future if we don't. And nobody wanted to listen to him. They were, and, and so we, we have this uh, auxiliary introverted sensation that we should use. But we don't. Instead, we've replaced it repeatedly. They did it in the end of the 19th century with the robber barons, and we're doing it now with the, you know, the waltz of the billionaires. Uh, <laughs> and we make the, we it's these, and so we constantly use our 
greedy Saturn extroverted sensation as if it were our auxiliary. And then we have our famous tertiary puerta turnus extroverted intuition, our Clinton function. And uh, so we have, I, I'm a Democrat, by the way, but yeah. you see uh, the problems. Um, so we're pathologically extroverted. Mm -hmm. We're like a manic depressive. We're like a manic episode. We're hypomanic, if not frankly manic. And of course, we're irritable. We're angry. And of course, we have violence because that's mm -hmm. what people who get into hypomania and mania get into. Well, like you were describing at the beginning, you going out and buying a new book across town or seeing a new film, that's probably pretty helpful to the engine of capitalism if you have everybody of doing course. that. Of course, I love to you spend. Know. I love to go shopping. And, and, and you know, we've when. when around the time of 911 someone said that you know we've got to prove that we're not going to let them get to us we've got to shop until we drop i and remember it, they would go out and shop constant conversation about growing the economy as if growth were the so we really have a lot to learn about the checks and balances within typology itself, that if the leading function, and this is where Isabel Briggs Myers really contributed to something Jung was, didn't make nearly as clear, that he did say the auxiliary function is different in every respect from the dominant, but he didn't seem to mean it. All he seemed to mean was that if the dominant is a rational function, the auxiliary will be an irrational function. He seemed to believe that if you were extroverted, your first three functions were extroverted. If you were introverted, your first three functions were introverted and your compensation came through the inferior function. That's the one that would be of the other attitude. I like the idea of the typology as a system of checks and balances. Mm -hmm. And that has been so helpful to see the in it in and when I so that when I see that as in people, I also want to see it in cultures. I would mm -hmm. like to see China restore its dominant in, in, uh, introverted intuition, and I'd like to see America restore its dominant extroverted thinking. It can do that, and I'd like to keep its excursions into things like extroverted sensation and I'd like to keep China's excursions into things like extroverted sensation um, to a more modest place As I think we need we need to recover our natural typologies and within and then try to relate to each other that mm -hmm. I think we could do not easy but uh I'm a dreamer, but I but I haven't given up. <laughs> well, it's an interesting map, and you never know who sees that and and you know uses it later. And did you <clears throat> did you ever read uh, Lament for the Dead that um, Sunday Shemdasani and, and James Hillman have a conversation about the I've Red Book? I've read some of it, and I, I haven't read every word of it. Uh, and what did you find in it that you found interesting? Well, um, that they kind of. Uh, hit on an ethics in Jung that's not ever really laid out in, in what he writes, but that I think they are onto something that the unlived life of the parent is an obstacle, but really it's the unlived life of all of the dead. You know, it's our job to go past the places where humanity hasn't gone yet. Um, and well, the unlived life of our culture is something that we feel. Oh, and well, what, I, what I feel is that what I got from Sonu, uh, 
I had my own conversation with Sonu, which you may not have seen, which was published in the, the Psychological Perspectives. I'd be happy to share. Oh, yeah, I'll look it up. I'd, I'd like to see that. We had a dialogue about the Red Book that you know, it was published before the Lament of the Dead. And I take very seriously Jung's idea that what we owe the dead is to take up the projects they left unfinished. Yeah. Yeah, I that's... must tell you that I have felt I've tried to do that. I actually felt that Jung's typology was an unfinished project that ought mm-hmm. to stay forward. And I, I feel that I've followed, I've, I've actually taken up that project rather than tried to replace it with my own. I see myself as adding and extending and trying to complete something that I felt that he absolutely didn't quite finish that's how mm-hmm. I, I don't mean to be arrogant about that but i also feel with my mother and my father i have i've had to carry projects they started mm-hmm. um and i um so i feel that that gets into what my colleague uh who grew up as an African-American man in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, and is now is now a Jungian analyst and uh, um, was a past president like myself of the C.G. Jung Institute of San Francisco, and I know his work very well. He speaks of phantom narratives, of course, in um, literature and, and by another African-American author, uh, uh, Toni Morrison, Beloved is a perfect example of a phantom mm. complex. Someone, it's, it's based on a true story of a, of, a, of a woman who, while a slave, killed her children, her babies because she did not want them to have to grow up as slaves. But then she, be, what, what happens is that she becomes, in Toni Morrison's novel, a woman living during the Reconstruction era. Um, who discovers that one of the children returns as a revenant, as a phantom that haunts her house. That's beloved. And uh, at the end, the the woman who had once killed that child that will not stay dead, but returns as a phantom, she says of her that it's my best thing. She actually, and of course, what that means is that the African-American would have to not simply repress and forget the memory of slavery, but take it in as something to to work with, take that fate, that horrible fate, mm-hmm. as something to work with as indeed our culture has to take that in, bigger culture has to take that in as well, but for the idea of African-Americans taking that on, and if the African-American is willing to take that on, then why in the world can't America take on the fact of what that phantomatic narrative, taking phantomatic narratives, taking on what, what we owe the dead is to stay with the problem they left unsolved and to and do what we can to solve it. And I so I feel like in every so in that sense, um, 
working on the inner is always going to take us to an unsolved psychological problem of our entire culture. You're kind of going through the self, through the parent, to the culture to find to find the self. And and you can't and and it's sort of it's sort of like um, what is called karma, and in, in the West, it's it's what we it's, it's sort of what what we have to do. Jung, and I do say all this in my preface to Jung's aspect of the masculine, where he took on his father's unsolved problem of Christian faith is a, a Christian minister who had lost his faith just around the same time that Nietzsche was saying God was dead, Nietzsche, the son of a Christian minister. And then Jung uh, takes on the whole question of faith. He knew more about the history of faith than most people know. One of the people that taught for a living, a Dutch scholar, Hillis, G-I-L-L-E-S, Quispel, Q-U-I-S-P-E-L, told me that he's, you know, he was taught in a university in Holland, and his job was to be, you know, give people PhDs in the history of the church fathers, which is called uh, in the Christian church, patristics. And he said that Jung was better read in patristics than any graduate student that he ever had. Jung had, that was Jung's work on his father's faith problem, to study all the Christian father's faith. So that Jungian psychology, I mean, a lot of, a lot of that could be seen as this thing to give his father to try and help him give have faith in a different way. And, get, and give him enough of the history of faith and the context of faith within the history of world religions mm -hmm. so that of course you would be confused of course you would mm -hmm. need a bigger picture and i and so in that sense what a wonderful thing to have done just like a, what a wonderful thing for me to go back to china and do something about being a pig i mean why not i mean in other words why not and how good it makes you feel the amazing thing is I mean, Toni Morrison set herself free uh, uh, by writing uh, Beloved and other books. And what a wonderful achievement. So that's the kind of thing that um, that makes me feel like... So it often will turn out to be a type of consciousness it didn't get a chance to tell its whole story. Mm -hmm. My ideas of the consciousnesses. It's not life. finished and it's not always containable to one life. You know, you have but to listen to, to stop is that each consciousness has its own story arc. You know, mine, uh, extroverted intuition has the story arc of entertaining. If I'm anything, I'm entertaining when I lecture and, but, and I'm also getting people to entertain ideas and, so it starts with entertaining an interesting set of ideas, but then it moves toward envisioning. And now we're very much there right now because I'm envisioning with you and you are with me. Thank you. What we can do with this. But finally, it's going even beyond that at the level of 
move from the persona of it to the ego of it, but now I want to get to the self of it, meaning the purpose of it. It's enabling. I want what Isabel Briggs Myers wants. I want the world to understand each other better. <laughs> so I can't leave her out. And I want what Jung wanted, which is to take up the unsolved problems of the dead, complete the Christian project, the psychological project. It, it, in other words, it, it, it's very important. And it's good for us to do that. And it probably does good for others as well. And that's what it seems like to me. Well, I think that's why the, the lament um, for the dead conversation that they had was interesting to me because I always liked depth psychology and feel like it's a great map. Um, but I also am very interested in the directly experiential kinds of therapy coming out now that are that are more shamanistic. I mean, brain spotting is that way. Internal family systems is that way. I mean, they have a gestalt kind of component to them. And, um, and you know, Hillman, James Hillman, I, I, was a, a brilliant guy and also a very good analyst by all accounts, but, you know, kind of got grandiose or off in places towards the end of his life. And, and in the in the lament for the dead book, you know, he's talking, and I could kind of feel like, okay, I I think that what I'm trying to do is finish your project of archetypal psychology that you never <laughs> quite figured out a technique for, or you never, you know, and, and uh, you know, I've there was an energy there that just was was interesting, you know, um, I, I don't know. It, I, well, yes, I think introverted feeling, introverted intuition cannot safely leave out an extroverted feeling and 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 and, and you don't obviously so uh, well the intuitive feeler types you know they're a lot of the more effective people have that function but when they go bad they go really bad you know it's like the same personality or ty the same typology of jesus is also the typology of hitler you know and I you know. look at you look at the people who you know, 2020 brought all these personalities that are on YouTube and whatever, and, you know, talking to younger people and saying all this awful stuff. And you look in their past, almost every one of those guys is a failed comedian. You know, <laughs> they, you know, they all have that um, intuitive felt, you know, um, thing well, that I does come from a pain in childhood that gives you some kind of voice and perspective. But if you don't master it, I mean, it really can eat you alive. You don't, you don't, you don't dare leave that, live out the body, outside of the body. We have to stop now because of time. But uh, for me, I have to, a call coming in at noon, I, so I'm going to have to take. But I thank I, you so much. I really appreciate your, your time. presence, uh, Joel. You've been very open to letting me talk, and I got a little hint of where you're coming from. And I want to share with you the Chinese notion of completion. Okay. As there's an image of the integrity of integrity in the Ching that I love so much. And uh, I wrote about this. I haven't ever published this paper. It's actually a talk that I'm planning to publish. But there are three elements to the image of integrity. And one is um, sincerity. One is limitation, a sense of limits. And that's important. You mentioned grandiosity, which gets to all of us from time to yeah. time. And then finally, um, uh, uh, completion. 
that what we owe the dead and completing the projects is one way not to get inflated. Mm -hmm. And there's a sincerity in it and there's a sense of limitation that each life has its limitation, but there's also what can be done. And what we can do is to complete. So America is an experiment in democracy that is presently trying to complete itself. And we have to let that completion take place. And that's the task of our lifetime. Well, we also have our typology and our psychology. We have to complete the task of bringing the body and the spirit and the soul together in an adequate theory and that's and and practice and practice and then a technique to apply the theory here we are together and you've taken my work and added it to yours that makes me very happy well thank you so much for this john i really appreciate it it's been wonderful and um i'll let you go and um i hope that this brings some new people to your work and um, you've got some great books and some great books. Mark Hunsinger, you know, wrote about you or with you. And, um, it's it's exciting. Thank you. Thank you for your life. Thank you. <laughs> wow. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs> Have a, Bye. You know, take care.